Hello and welcome to Plato's Cave, a triple R film criticism show and podcast. I am your host, Paul Anthony Nelson, and joining me in the cave tonight are Sally Christie. Hello, Paul. And Flick Ford. Hello. How are we doing tonight? Very well. Good. This is my, my last um, show for 2019. Oh, nice. I know I'm going to be missing the, um, the countdowns, the top. They're starting next week, is that right? They are, yeah. I'm, I'm definitely sending all my lists in, so they will be read out for those of you that are just dying to hear what <laughs> yeah. but i am i am pretty bummed i'm not going to be here for those so are we yeah. we are stoked as uh, as sally said this is this is our last review week of the season but we are on for the next two weeks uh, a couple of huge wrap-up weeks next week we'll be counting down uh the cave's collective top 10 films of 2019 and the week after we'll be counting down the cave's collective top 10 of the 2010s Oh, the decade. God, that's such, it's crazy because 2000 feels like it was 10 years ago. It does, <laughs> doesn't it? But then there's some things I was just saying to Paul and Flick before. There's some films where I've been looking back and going, that was within this decade. It feels like so much longer ago, like Melancholia. Like mm. seems like it's been around forever. Yeah. And that fits in with this last decade. Um and we've discovered throughout this whole process that Paul loves a list. I oh, do. I do. I, I do as well. I feel like yeah, so do I, he's brought honest. it out in me. Yeah, so do I. Yes. Yeah. Molding minds. I, this is my obsession. It's like, as, as this is my you know, first year as host. It's like, I know Thomas had a lot of his you know, own obsessions and picadillos and things he liked to do with the show. My only one is, I need to do the list. <laughs> List of the year, list of the decade. I'm obsessed with making lists. I think lists. it's a pretty common thing with um, film nerds' lists. It so kind I think of I was is. talking to Michael Helms um, and he was saying the same thing that film nerds love making lists. I've had and actually it's very ex- true. Yeah, I'm, uh, another film nerd friend of mine, we opened up our matching diaries. We somehow got the exact same <laughs> diary and we also had the exact same categorization of how we kept our film viewing. Wow. <laughs> I was just amazed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Soulmates. I just, yeah, I, I, yeah, I'm obsessed with the website Letterboxd. I'm obsessed with making lists. It's insane. And for the next two weeks, I will be in fantasy camp, uh, <laughs> going through everybody's lists. And the cool thing is, I get them all before everyone else, so I'll be able to see them and collate them. And yeah, and uh, it'll be. I can't wait. Um, so for our final, uh, the last three films of the year that we'll be reviewing tonight, it's all volatile couples and rock music on tonight's show. As we look at Mia Voshikovska and Damon Herriman's abusive puppeteers in Mirror Falk's debut feature, Judy and Punch. For our retro title, we'll get uncomfortably close to Punk's signature doomed romance with Gary Oldman and Chloe Webb as Sid and Nancy for director Alex Cox. And we'll dive deep into the amazing life and achievements of the original rock chick, the one and only Susie Quattro in Liam Firmage's debut documentary, Susie Q. But firstly, Judy and Punch. The titular couple, Judy and Punch, Mia Voshikovska and Damien Harriman, are puppeteers in a desolate ye olde English town called Seaside, which is nowhere near the sea, and the first sign that all is not well here. While Judy's skills with a marionette are at least equal to her husband's, it's the Professor Punch show and he gets all the credit and fame. 
such as that is when you're playing to a vile town of stinking, drunken, superstitious, hateful reprobates whose pastimes when they're not watching puppet show violence is to watch the real thing in the form of stonings and hangings. It's clear Judy and Punch have seen better days, with his and his alcoholism and abusive temper have seen them fall from grace. Now with a small child, they long for a return to the lights of the big city rather than this festering sore of a place they were born in. So Punch reluctantly agrees to stay off the wagon again, but it's not long before he tumbles from it, resulting in catastrophic circumstances for their daughter and Judy herself. In a town obsessed with mob justice and vanquishing superstitious notions of evil, Judy might need some outsider help to set things right. Sally, did this leave you feeling punchy-punchy at the film or smashy-smashy of the patriarchy? (laughs) Or both? Both. Mm. (laughs) Both. I I did actually really enjoy this film. Um, I went into it. I didn't. It screened at MIF. I think. I don't know if that was its world premiere or. I'm not sure, but it, it did screen at MIF. I didn't catch it there, and I went into it not knowing a whole lot about it. Um, I thought it was great fun, to be honest, and I really admire a film that deals with a subject that is quite hard to deal with. Um, this looks at domestic violence. It doesn't take itself too seriously. I think that cinema really struggles to be able to do that these days. Um, It's interesting because (laughs) this is coming up against, um, not up against, but being, you know, compared to The Nightingale a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Just how? Yeah. (laughs) It's just... um, Such a different film. So different and (laughs) the kind of pivotal points in both films, the way that this one is done... Um, oh God, it's really hard to talk about without sports. <laughs> but um, it's really funny and I really admired that about it. I did feel it fell apart a little bit within the second half. Um, but, yeah, overall it was very, very enjoyable. Also, it was filmed locally. It was filmed where I got married. <laughs> well, well, to be honest, I'm, I'm sitting watching those shows and I'm like, I'm pretty sure I saw Paul McDermott there. Yes, yes. <laughs> they used it was filmed the, the at that. Oh. Yeah, yeah. So the, the shows were at the Melbourne Spiegel Tent, yes. which is in Collingwood. Mm. Um, oh, I cycle past that every day. Yeah, yeah. So yes. it's all very local. So that was a real thrill watching this movie and just seeing all these local things. Where so the the bulk of it, the um, seaside, the town is Montsalvat. Yeah, wow. and they've just kind of done it up a little bit. They've repurposed some rooms, and where they were filming the actual Punch and Judy sequences is the Melbourne Spiegel Tent, which is pretty much right next door to the Tote. Yeah, and um, as a, yeah. one or two employees of the No pop up in the film as well (laughs) but yeah I I did I did really enjoy this film yeah like I said before it's something that has such serious content that can be dealt with in kind of a fun jovial way is not an easy task and I do think this pulls it off pretty successfully yeah Yeah. it's interesting and I'm always cautious to describe um films as fitting into you know, national cinema. Yes. But I feel this film actually does it. And yeah. I think there's a lot of elements to that. And one of those would be its kookiness. I think that really strange offbeat humour is very much representative of Australian cinema. And also the really dark um, story content. Like mm. there's a lot in there. There's domestic violence. Um, there's a there's... toxic male in its lead. <laughs> How can this not be an Australian film? Yeah. <laughs> of course. Um, yeah, and it, it's kind of... Um, and it's it's got a lot of violence in it. Um, it's it's really doesn't hold back the the punches at all. Mm. Um, 
And I think that it's very performative. I feel like all of those elements are so quintessential of Australian cinema. So this is a film that I did see at MIF and it was one I was super excited about seeing. I think it's actually better to see it outside of the festival scene because there's so many films during that festival and a lot of them have quite heavy material and a kind of... um, Often these sort of sprawling masterpieces. And I don't think that this film is that. I think it's actually, it's quite an unusual piece. It's really enjoyable. I, I, I really also, one thing that I super enjoyed about this was the score. Yeah. Yeah, it was yeah. great. That kind of synth score that went all the way through it was quite jarring because it didn't fit with the rest of the film. Yeah. And music yeah. sighs a lot too. It's like this, oh, yes. There's sort of thing going yeah. on. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah. really like that about it. It was very playful. And also for a debut feature, this is an incredibly polished film. Yep. It, it just looks um, amazing on screen and I think that um, I, I'd be interested to see how it performs with international audiences. Um, I don't know what its reach has been in other festivals or whether I will say it, it actually premiered at Sundance. Oh, right. Okay, yeah. Because yeah. um, it is – because Mirror Forks is one of the um, – the blue t- uh, blue tongue films team. That's, that's the Edgerton Joel Edgerton. brothers, yep. uh, that, David that Michaud. Because she was in Spencer Animal Sussa. Kingdom, wasn't she? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. So yeah, she's one of that mafia. So, <laughs> so okay, so yeah. it's got a bit of reach. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, it was a film that I enjoyed quite a lot. I do feel like it's it's got a lot of things. Uh, Mm, I don't want to make any spoilers. Yeah, it's hard. <laughs> yeah. it was really hard yeah, to difficult. talk about it. Mm. Um, but I, I suppose it could have gone further for me. Like I think that it could have been a little bit more radical um, and I wouldn't have minded. I think that they went there with the violence and they could have gone there with the politics as well, I, maybe dialing it up a bit. Yeah, I agree with you, Flick, um, because it is really billed as being this kind of crazy bonkers over the top mm. thing, which to some degree it was, but not – not enough for us. Not mm. enough. Because <laughs> we're dead asses that are like, nah. <laughs> yeah, so Smash I, the patriarchy yeah, a little I really, bit more. I really feel like I was, I was waiting for it to kind of go to that sort of yeah. next level yeah. because it was really being pushed as that. And, and it's there yeah. on a, in a formal sense. Like yeah. as you were saying, the, the score is really innovative. The performances are there. It's It just needed um, – yeah, just needed to be a bit more radical. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I was almost opposite to you, Sal. I watched the first half and I was like, "Who is this movie for?" I couldn't <laughs> I couldn't work out that like it just seemed like I, the the, the humour wasn't coming off for me. The the performances are great, but it just yeah. seemed really I don't know. Everything seemed to sit really uncomfortably. And then once the second half kind of rolls on, it began to gel for me, okay. and it actually sort of began to come together and. Felt more cohesive after that. Um, and by the end, I was actually much more swept up in it. Yeah. Um, and I did think, I did feel like the climactic showdown, I'll, to quote Emma, shall we say, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, is the climactic showdown is, I thought that was going to be more expansive. Yeah, so mm. did I. Yeah, very I thought that was so. going to be, wow, very, there's, very much there's so. going to be an apocalypse. Yep. Mm-hmm. But they kind of went another way, which is, you know, the pacifist in me kind of likes mm-hmm. that. Um, but, yeah, but there's the other side of me that's going, that would be kind of interesting and cool. Um, but, yeah, but by the end I, I ended up kind of being on board with it. But I found it, like, the film is incredibly unpleasant. Like, this is, this is mm. the weird thing. It's incredible. Like, it is very enjoyable. And it takes a lot of cues from... There's a lot of Terry Gilliam in this. Yeah, yeah a Absolutely. lot. Heaps. Um, mm. You know, and, and, and that sort of cinema. Um, but there is also... Um, more, there's also a little Quentin Tarantino in here, yeah. too. Yeah. Um, and I sort of... Yeah, and, and sort of getting into that. And I, I love that 
Fuchs has done this as a debut and has, has decided to go so big and so bold. Mm. And I think that is something to be really um, noted. I think Actually, it's remarkable. The, I was thinking the Tarantino link is also that Mia looks a lot like Uma. She She's does got that look to her, like that kind of... Um, yeah, that sort of um, the blonde looks frail but isn't frail. Yeah. 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 Particularly also like when Smash them on the floor, it's that very similar to the Kill the Bill. Oh, yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Yep. Over the, you know, 100%. over the face shot. Um, but yeah, I I just think tonally it's got some issues, but mm. once it all sort of um, g- um, gels together, it, it's it's quite interesting. But yeah, I think again something that's so it's quite enjoyable, but also f- really unpleasant. And I found particularly the town of Seaside, I just found them disgust like I just hated every minute of there. I was like, I hate these people. I want to get out of other mm. than the, the constable. But and and of course, I, and I felt myself really like. Really feeling, I think the characters I was attached to the most for reasons I won't go into here were the servants. Like I became yes. really emotionally yeah. attached. Oh, I got so upset yeah. at a certain point in this film that we are not going to spoil. Exactly, and that's the thing. I, the weird thing is, it's like, is it weird that I feel more connected to these two side characters than I do the mm. two main characters? I, I, I felt that as well. So it's mm. interesting that we've we've all felt that with those yeah. two side characters, and they are pretty minimal. You know, they don't have a big part in it at all. No, it's um, kind of strange. Mm. Yeah, so there, there was a lot of mixed feelings with me in this film. But but I've got to say, I I admire any filmmaker that comes out of the dugout swing for the fences, and Fawkes has definitely done that here. And, yeah, it's 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 worth a look. And it'll be exciting to see what she does next. Yes. Absolutely. For sure. Mm. Yeah, this is a pretty um, great debut film, for sure. So, Judy and Punch is currently screening at all good independent cinemas. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Sid and Nancy opens with Sid Vicious, Gary Oldman, sitting almost catatonically in a trashed hotel room as the bloodied body of his girlfriend, Nancy Spungen, is carried out. Once Sid is prized out of the Hotel Chelsea and interrogated by the police, he reconstructs the story of how he met Nancy, played by Chloe Webb, just as the Sex Pistols and Punk were taking over the UK and the world at large, and how quickly they fell into a passionate, volatile, codependent relationship dependent upon each other and the heroin they began to score, and how these dependencies would, within mere years, bring about their downfall in tragic, horrifying fashion. Sally, as this was your retro pick for this evening, is there a more perfect metaphor for this film and the journey of its lead characters than Sid and Nancy snogging by a skip while the sky rains garbage? I I rewatched the second half of it today, and that scene was on, I was like, oh, it's quite lovely. Um, This film... I love this film for lots of different reasons and it also is a very complicated film. Um, I used to, like, as a teenager, as, like, a teenage punk, I used to watch this film all the time and I still really enjoy it as an adult but my ideas on this film have shifted. Uh, I I still think it's a fantastic movie. I love it. It fits into this weird subcategory that I'm very fond of which is... um, Films about junky love, and there's a lot of them. There's dogs in space. Geez, you're living in the right country for that. <laughs> Christiane F. Candy, Candy. 
the yeah. Panic at Needle Park. Um, Requiem for a Dream. Yeah. Oh, Wasn't oh. like, M for J. Like there was a there's, whole bunch around the turn yeah, of the decade. We should do our were... top ten of junky <laughs> I, I actually, I actually did a mini lecture on this a little while ago. So, um, <laughs> but there is a kind of this mini subgenre of you know junky love films. And I do. I'm really drawn to them. I always have been, and I'm also really drawn to films that look at subcultures so this is totally my cup of tea so we're looking at punk we're looking at junkie love it's got everything in there for me (laughs) plus it's got a really good soundtrack um but one thing this film does is it still is really a big issue the way that it portrays nancy spongeon in this film Mm. so she's demonized and she has been consistently demonized i think since before she died up until this day um as an annoying, nagging groupie. Uh, who, and who also introduces Sid to heroin. Yes. Mm. Yeah. So she's Which completely his downfall <laughs> and if he didn't meet her, things might have been different. Mm. Exactly. So she's this bad, bad woman. Um, so I have a big issue with that. I do think Chloe Webb is fantastic in this film. She has, you know, she... Her performance is amazing. She actually won me over. I she's was great. annoyed by her initially because yep. the character is kind of terrible. Yeah, she's <laughs> yeah, portrayed yeah. this really annoying woman. But, but despite mm. that, I her performance and just her character, yep. I kind of like came around to through, Cause, through cause that. Because she, she commits. Yeah. Courtney, Courtney Love has a very minor role she in this does. film and she did initially – Go for the role of Nancy, but didn't get it lost out to Chloe. I, well, I actually yeah. love that Courtney Love and was a part decided, of the film. And, yeah, then and then decided then... to become her? No. Yeah. <laughs> well, I actually think, I thought that was a beautiful intertextuality yeah, yeah. and maybe yeah. not deliberate. I don't know. Yeah, but, I think that too. But, you know, she was also this woman who was really crucified by the press mm-hmm. yeah. um, for her, yep. you know, and junkie, another junkie lovers. <laughs> yeah, I, I find, I think that the way Nancy Spunch, and I'm sure there obviously women before her that have been portrayed that way, but she is just still so crucified and Sid Vicious even still is held up on this pedestal of, you know, being this great punk rock icon. And I love the Sex Pistols. I love their music. Um, but I'm not going to excuse his actions <laughs> for, you know, even a second. This film is very sympathetic towards Sid Vicious um, as kind of a confused young man, which I'm sure he was. He was, I think he was 21 when he died and Nancy was 20 when um, she was killed by him. Um, So they were really, really young. Um, So I think this is a really great film. It really captures that kind of essence of what punk was. Uh, Often when they make films about a particular subculture, it comes off as being really daggy. Mm. (laughs) And this doesn't. Mm. I think that he does, uh, Alex Cox does a really, really good job with this film, even though I know that um, Johnny Rotten had some issues with it. You know, some other members of the Sex Pistols had some issues with it. But I I do think it really stays true to kind of, you know, what punk was about. Um, So, yeah, there's a lot of nostalgia in this for Mm. me. There's a lot of growth in this film, I think, as I've gotten older and I still appreciate it. I still love it. Uh, I think it's an excellent film. Uh, have either of you read that book by Nancy Spungen's mum called I Don't Want to Live This Life? No. It's fantastic. Okay. It's also one of John Waters' favourite books ever. <laughs> oh. Just saying. Um, but, yeah, it's a really interesting book that she's written talking about that the massive struggles that she had with her daughter since she was born, basically. Mm. And, um, you know, uh, her issues sort of even as a child where – they didn't know what was wrong with her. She wouldn't stop screaming. This continual oh. behavioural problems that she had. 
that, um, you know, sort of leading up to her, I guess, drug abuse because there wasn't any kind of correct medication that could help her or anything like that. It's really quite fascinating. Mm. Um, So maybe like an undiagnosed autism or something like that. that, Mm -hmm. And again, might have contributed to misunderstandings yes. of Spongen in the past as mm-hmm. just being annoying and loud and yes, an abrasive. Yes, an annoying woman. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, an annoying loud woman. But, yeah, so I, I, it was really good to – I do revisit this film fairly regularly and, yeah, it was nice to go back and look at it. I was I was so happy you picked this, Sally. Mm. I was also um, obsessed with punk music. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I still I still have a, I definitely have a soft spot for it. Still, um, I was obsessed with punk from probably being about maybe twelve or so, and especially with like seventies punk scene. I mm-hmm. just became like took a deep dive into that. Um, I loved some of the characters that feature in this, like um, Susie from Susie and the Banshees. Um, seeing like all the different characters related to the punk world at that time, like Michael McLaren, um, who was the partner of Vivian Westwood, and all of the kind of politics that also was connected up into that and the marketing of punk, both in the UK but also in, in America, is just fascinating. Sex pistols were really manufactured. Yeah, they were yeah super absolutely. manufactured. As manufactured even, as the monkeys. Yeah, yeah. The Spice yeah. Girls, mm. totally. Like that. They yeah. were. Yeah, it was. It was seeing it as this is a great mm-hmm. marketing opportunity. Yep. Um, I really, yeah, I enjoyed this immensely. I, I used to live in London. I used to go to Spice of Life a whole heap, and so it was great mm. also seeing that pub there and seeing some of like the um, live performances. I, I feel like um, one criticism I would have is I I think there's moments that it feels like I don't think Alex Cox is himself a, a punk fan. Um, and I think that um, Gary Oldman also said that he hates punk and <laughs> only did this role for the money. And I thought it was interesting because I think some of that comes across. So I, know, I, I feel know, like Alex Cox because he did Repo Man. And he's stuff. a massive fan, like Joe Strummer. Yeah. He works with The Clash all the he time. Because his film after that was Straight to Hell, which starred well, yeah, Joe he was He was quoted, I, can't, I haven't got the quote here. Yeah. He was, well, maybe not, a, maybe not so much a, not a fan of punk, but mm. he said that he didn't want to, he wanted to make sure that he didn't glamorise these people because because he was like, I don't agree with I think with he this. does glamorise. Yeah, which is interesting because so many of the images <laughs> yeah. are beautiful. So it was kind of interesting because I feel as though it's quite hard sometimes to capture the energy of punk on, on film. And I think there's a few films that do it exceptionally well. One of my favourite films of all time is The Green Room. Oh, Green Room, sorry. Not oh, the wow. Room, where they capture, they they do, capture yeah. that so well. And mm. I feel like there's elements of that in this film, but I probably wanted to see more of it. I suppose I loved the music so much I was like wanting for it yeah. to be like see, in I, every... I don't know. I feel like Alex Cox does a really good job with it. And well, I, I like Green Room too. Yeah. I definitely think that that um, does too. But I think that this probably Return of the Living Dead would be my <laughs> other one that fight, I feel so that, like yeah. really captures like punk yeah. super well. It's, I it's suppose, hard. It's a hard yeah, thing to it do. Is, mm. It's really difficult. I, I did love um, actually the whole um, narrative of drug abuse in this. I thought that it was amazingly well captured and, and kind of the boredom that goes along with it and yes. that, that kind of cycle of obsession and desperation and then boredom and and sort of checking out, and I was really moved by it. Actually, I've been rewatching The Wire recently, and it really reminded me of some of those scenes in which Bubs is. If you haven't seen The Wire, please check it out. <laughs> but Bubs is um, he's one of the main characters in it, and and he's a junkie. And there's these great scenes where he he's so lively, and his 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 character completely changes mm. when when he injects. And it's kind of it was great seeing that on screen. And yeah, I was really moved by it. It did push me to sort of look more into this because. Um, 
I was curious about um, what happens to Nancy, and and there's now a new um, theory going ahead that the deal, the one of the drug dealers had actually stabbed her, not Sid, and there was a lot of evidence going towards no, I don't that. Know. Maybe you know? it could be. I don't know. <laughs> okay, maybe I just wanted that to be. <laughs> but it, and, and it's kind of really interesting reading up about his relationship with his mum. Oh, it's crazy. Was, his yeah. relationship with his mother is and, insane. And also yeah. uh, the the controversy around his own death um, to do with his mother. So mm. she she was actually the one who sourced him the heroin. And as mm. a user herself, there's a lot of. Um, uh, speculation that she would have known what would have been a safe dose for him because he mm-hmm. was once he was in prison he was um, he actually came clean during that time because he wasn't able to get access to heroin so yeah I, it kind of I don't know this is a great film I love it so much yeah. <laughs> I, I know I picked out a few bits that I didn't like but I think that on the whole it's such a and aesthetically it's such a joy to watch like, they've done so many interesting also, shots like Roger Deacon this, yeah it's so good the first half of it is such a London film and then yes. the second half of it is such a New York film yeah. and that's really beautiful that the way that he uh, Alex Cox has managed to do that yeah yeah really gorgeous see I gotta admit I'm a little opposite to you Sal junkie love films are almost like kryptonite to me my, hu- my, my husband is the same he's like I cannot watch this this is the most depressing thing I have ever seen in my life I, so I love I, li- I live with someone like this because I adored the first 75 minutes or so uh-huh. and uh, and I was like yep I'm totally and yeah I'm I'm with you it's like I love that Chloe Webb commits so fiercely to this role but at the same time it's like geez this character is really kind of one note like she's just all mm-hmm. but there's great scenes like where they Go to her parents' place. Oh, isn't that scene That's amazing? Fantastic. There's a dinner lots of humour in this film. Yeah. Yeah. Like there's lots of really, oh, really funny the moments. Scenes, so, the dinner yeah. scene is my favourite. So, so uh, what are your intentions for my daughter? <laughs> oh, we're going to go down to the methadone clinic. Like It's just like, this is amazing. <laughs> um, but it's then, and I think you're absolutely right, Flick. I think that does capture the boredom and the stasis and, you know, of, of, of you know, going through heroin trips. A little too well because I began to check out. Um, <laughs> and, and, and it was just that sort of thing. It's like, I just, this, uh, you, you, can you not get this across in 10 or 15 minutes rather than 20 or 30? Oh, see, I kind of really sunk into it. Oh, I was no, really enjoying I was just it. like, come on, let's go. <laughs> and then I, and then the end, I really, I really, you know, I, I, I dug the end of it. But yeah, I, I just found that, and I did feel it a little bit like, you know, I mean, okay. It's interesting. We are talking about Pain and Glory the other week yes. and Pain and Glory's a, a, a approach to heroin um, usage. And and I understand that, you know, Sid and Nancy's relationship was destructive, and but it did feel a little bit didactic in terms oh, of yeah. sure. it's, yeah. you know, heroin use is bad. Well, and, that, was, you know, that was Cox's intention, though. That like, And that sort of feels yeah, like that. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I feel like it's... That's why what, I, I just hate Requiem for a Dream so much. <laughs> So, I don't just, do I, drugs. See, my, I just hate it. So I agree. Much. I know this is total so sidebar. Preachy. Yes, the total sidebar. The only thing about Requiem for the Dream that I like and I really love it is the Ellen Bursting story. Because her, yeah, her it's complete is accidental. Great. It's great. And that whole story is like but the rest of it just makes me want to pull my yeah. hair out. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. Um, yeah. um, I, I probably like it a little more than you, but yeah, but the 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 the, the, the that uh, story is the only one I like. Back to Sid and Nancy. Um, but, yeah, I just – I think that's the thing, Flick. I think more than the anti-punk, it's the anti-drug thing. Yeah. And it's like – and I, Yeah, that's fair. And I don't – like, you know, of course, you know, like, 
heroin addiction can be, you know, is a scourge. But yeah, but I think there's there's a more balanced way to handle and it. That yeah, it's a bit non nuanced. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, just drugs are bad. Yeah, okay. okay. <laughs> and also, kind of understanding why they'd be doing it. Like, yeah. punk came out of the working class. Like, it was it was kind of like. It That's was, it. you know, there was a re- it's an uprising of sorts mm-hmm. and it was just like not saying that they turned to heroin addiction for those purposes but you have to think about why someone would, would, would feel that they want to try that mm. and want to escape what are they escaping. Yeah. And particularly as, you know, he's working class but she's seemingly quite well off yeah, and you know, has this, and her friend who's working as a dominatrix in this yeah. beautiful apartment that, that Sid and, and Johnny immediately begin to trash yeah. the moment they get there. <laughs> you know, it's like they're quite well off. So you've got this weird class intersection between, yeah. um, you know, the the, the, uh, the working class and, and the quite wealthy, uh, at least or at least upper middle class, um, yeah. which is, yeah, Actually, they're all jo- trying with these same ends. There's a great quote where Johnny Rotten, when asked about his um, views on the film, was like, oh, they said that I had baked beans with champagne. I've never done that in my life. <laughs> That's his complaint. I was, <laughs> the one thing. I was surprised he didn't say it was boring. <laughs> <laughs> I think that might have also been part of it. <laughs> So Sid and Nancy is currently streaming on SBS On Demand until the end of the year. So you've got five weeks to catch it before it uh, vanishes from SBS On Demand. Triple R. Growing up in Detroit in a musical family of five, it was easy for Susan Quattro to blend in and be one of the band, which indeed they were. Her and her sisters, Patty and Arlene, formed a band with two other girls called The Pleasure Seekers, managed by their musical prodigy brother, Michael. But both for the fact that it was uncommon for a woman to play the bass at that time and in the mid-60s, and for that certain X factor of charisma, Susie always stood out. So when she was plucked from her family's band audition by major music producer Mickey Most and earmarked for a solo career in the UK, she both got her greatest wish and her greatest sadness, both of which would define her life from then on. Despite some hard times early on as a lone American girl in London, within two years, Susie Quattro's charisma, uniqueness, nerve and talent... (laughs) Shout out to RuPaul fans out there. (laughs) ...would see her debut solo single, Can the Can, explode to number one all over the world, see her become the signature female face of the UK's burgeoning glam rock scene and influence countless women, from Deborah Harry to Joan Jett to L7's Danita Sparks, to pick up a guitar, grab the mic and own the stage for themselves. Flick... Did this story of the OG rock chick leave you reaching for your bass guitar? Uh, yeah, I suppose. I don't have a bass guitar, but <laughs> if, if I did. did have one, yes, I would be reaching for it. <laughs> um, no, this is awesome. I um, I really got into it. I just saw it last night, actually, so it's pretty fresh on my mind. I had an interesting viewing experience, experience mm-hmm. which I feel like I always bring, <laughs> bring to <laughs> these. viewing experience. Yeah. But I, um, it was really sweet, actually. So as soon as there's a, it features a lot of um, live performances and uh, sorry, footage of live performances in, in the film. And uh, the man behind me was obviously a big fan because he sang along with every single song. Wow. <laughs> um, and initially I, my partner and I saw it last night and I was kind of rolling our eyes a bit. But then I was like, actually, that's really sweet. Like <laughs> it stopped being annoying and started just being like, oh, really, I had really an experience <laughs> similar to that when um, I saw 
um, Bohemian Rhapsody. I think oh. it was a media screen, but also it was like um, <laughs> a media screen. Yeah, no, no, no. But I think it was like <laughs> some reviewer, <laughs> Gold, some jaded reviewer. Gold 104 were giving away some um, passes or oh, something like that. Yeah. So right. there was some you get the super as fans. Well. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there was a couple of people behind me doing that with Bohemian Rhapsody. It was pretty delightful. <laughs> I really enjoyed yeah. it. There's something quite charming. I mean, yeah. So I. Um, so anyhow, sorry. That's a bit of a. a Detour of sorts. I yeah, I did really enjoy this. I think um, the bits that so the things I didn't quite like about it was there's uh, sections of it that include parts of her poetry, and I kind of felt like that was a bit clunky. Um, there was also um, bits where like certain things people were saying, like quotes, were immediately like put up onto the screen as like a quote. Mm. Sort of, I found that a bit of an unusual. Thing and so the documentary style itself, I didn't actually like. Okay. Um, having said that, the story is so strong that it kind of won me over. So, there's, there's I think it's a great introduction to Susie because it literally goes from like the start to the end. It's mm. like this is her story, and this is why you should want to listen to this story. And I think that it kind of just does that. And her, the fact that she kind of was the first woman of rock, um, so to speak. Well, that's what they're kind of the doco's yeah. going with. The doco uh, kind of pretends that Grace Slick doesn't exist. Yeah, but, but, I know. Yeah. It's a bit of, yeah, yeah. It's a selective history. Mm. Having said that, it was really powerful. Just I loved her charisma and, and she's got these such sparkly eyes and she you can kind of sense her her um, her personality com- really comes across. And I feel like the documentary doesn't um, shy away from some of the more difficult conversations around her family and her relationship to her family and also there's some fantastic footage I mean I say fantastic it's quite disturbing footage um of her as a very young woman um being basically sexually harassed on 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 a talk show yeah and I was just like that is shocking like that was one thing that I I I felt that it did shy away from a little in terms of they could have asked her about it yeah because yeah they kind of they they show this footage which was just like oh my god God. I, yeah. She walks on and somebody basically slaps her well, ass. They, they tell her to and turn around yeah. first yes. and be like, show the audience what they want to see or something um, like that. Yeah. And it's just so like, it's a double whammy. And she's about 18, 19, yeah, I think. Yeah, really mm. young. Not, um, I mean, it's never okay at any age. But then I think that it's maybe Danita Sparks from L7 or Joan Jett, someone important. Says, There's a lot of talking Can you imagine what she went through um, being a female musician at that time. And then that's kind of it. That's it doesn't true, kind actually. of go You're any right. deeper. They don't, so yeah. I, I did really enjoy this documentary. I found it a, a lot of fun to watch. I found it really informative. Mm. Um, I've always been aware of Susie Quattro. My mum has had her vinyls. My mum's obsessed with yeah. her as well. I think there was something very much yeah. like I kind of got it and a bit more. You know, like, I know oh, all wow. the music and stuff, yeah. but it was kind of like I didn't realise that she – was so influential and that she was so kind of early on in the game. Mm. I wasn't aware of that. So it was it was great to kind of see that and yeah, she's just she's so charismatic and so mm. sweet and she's very um not in a bad way, but she's very safe and nice and you know. I, I did think that you got to see a bit of her bit of a spark from her though, especially in some of the interviews and even like present day interviews that they include where she gets asked certain questions and her facial expressions actually tell a different story yes. or kind of like slightly sassy comebacks. Mm. And I kind of was thinking, I suppose that because in some ways she was a bit of a trailblazer and she said it, she's going through that 
that landscape and negotiating it for the first time. I mean, like we're, we're cancelling out a lot of other female musicians, <laughs> I realise. But for the purposes of the documentary, yeah. they're saying that she's a trail, trailblazer in that sense. And I think she, she did she that. Was, she was. Was. Like, she at was. At the, at the <clears throat> most, she's one of a handful. Yes. yes. Like the, so it's only ignoring. She, she's not, yeah. she's not, when anyone makes a claim that this is the first or this is the yes. only. Yes, of course. Yeah, it's always. No. There's but other people that are she, involved, but she's def, definitely, yeah. Yeah. yeah, like Paul said, it, within a And you a get a sense of like how difficult it must have been to for her, especially as a young woman without her family living in London and away from away from her home and working that out and I mean she got married quite young as well and um I don't know I found I found that side of her really interesting and I, I actually agree with you Sally like on reflection they should have actually followed that mm. up shouldn't they because yeah I was I was waiting for that to happen mm. I was like okay they've yeah, taken this thing which is a, a big thing um and nothing came yeah, of it I, I'm yeah. wondering how much of that was directed by her because uh, she's always, like throughout her career, she'd always depoliticise things yeah, and always yeah. kind of stayed away from that and just kind of sure. became the change she wanted to see rather uh-huh. than actually comment on that stuff. Yep, okay. And I wonder whether that's something she's continued and basically shut mm. that down and went, look, I'm not, I'm not mm. going to... I'm not going to force my view on that. And and like, also, just it's, look. Yeah. It's kind of like just look at the footage, and that should be enough to tell you yeah, what exactly. it was like. And yeah, this that's is, very true. And this is an Australian production, so this is Film Victoria <gasps> you know funding. What for a long time. I thought that Susie Q was. <laughs> Me Susie too. Was Here's the thing: she because she was so, so huge, she was huge so, here. And, yeah. Yeah, she was massive and it was like, what is that connection? Why did I think that about her? And it was interesting watching this where you see that she was kind of like our rock ABBA where yes, we yeah. just kind of embraced her. We loved her. Yeah. Yeah. Um, she was and- massive here. And I, I had that thing as a child of just assuming – if my parents were really into someone, that we must know them personally. So I was just like, oh, I must know she, she was your next door neighbour. So I definitely assumed yeah. she was Australian. She was your next door neighbour. <laughs> so silly. It's funny. It's, I, like, I, I rather like the style of this documentary and it's very much that new, you know, post-not-quite-Hollywood kind of style of, of, of documentary filmmaking, you know, flashy graphics and cool type and all that sort of thing. Like you, Flick, I was a little put off by the instant quote thing. I, I thought that was a bit strange. But and the I, poetry thing, did you Yeah, know yeah, yeah. Um, I but, I mean, it's obviously something that means a lot to her and I guess that's part of the yeah. whole package. Um, but it, it felt to me, yeah. But other than that, I, I rather liked the documentary style. I got a lot out of this. I was actually... Yeah, I really liked Going it into it, it I didn't fun. think I'd like it as much as I did. I thought it was like, yeah. oh, this is going to be kind of sweet and yeah. Yeah. hagiography. Kind of, it, like but it, I liked the journey and I thought the stuff with the family was fascinating. I like that too. And it's always, I, I, I like a kind of a music docker. I, mm. I enjoy them. So it's going to this. It's like, yeah, I'll enjoy this. But I did, I really like this. I thought it was great. And that massive impact that her being removed from her family had, mm. it was super oh. fascinating. And, and the aftermath of it. like, But also very today. interesting I mean, it's hard to describe, I guess, if you haven't seen this documentary or you're not familiar with her early career, um, about why they decided that she was plucked out of this and why she was special because they all looked talented. Mm. They all aesthetically looked great. Um, So they didn't really go into what sort of made her I felt like it was kind of her – she had kind of a grunginess to her and sort of a spunk. The others were a little bit more polished. Sure. And I think Susie looked a little bit more like – an individual. Mm. And they were talking a lot about how that coincided with this rise in like the hippie movement and mm. kind of like going more kind of in air quotes authentic and and I think that she fitted more into that than these very polished 
yeah. very pretty girls. And I'm mm. not saying she wasn't – she's obviously very attractive, but I think that she had that, yeah, that grungy element. Yes. Perhaps worked more with that shift in politics absolutely. as well. Even and, if she didn't herself engage in it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Again, I felt like she was kind of the change she wanted yeah, to see. Yeah, um, I liked the um, – uh, her kind of, I, I love her directness. Like I, I felt like she, she is quite open and honest about, mm. you know, most things. And I found her quite a, you know, obviously charismatic. But yeah, I just found her story very interesting. Um, I, yeah, I found the family dynamic really fascinating, and there were no easy answers there. And mm. all of the sisters got a say and a word in. We saw all their perspectives, and, and this thing it sort of would seem like it's healing, and then it's not. And mm. and I just feel like that's something that will play out until the end of their lives. And mm. that is really, yeah, I found that terrain really fascinating. Um, one thing not mentioned in the doco, Arlene, who I think is the middle sister, mm. she, her daughter is Sherilyn Fenn. Susie Quattro is Sherilyn Fenn's auntie. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. I didn't know that. Audrey Horn from Twin Peaks. Mm. Wow. So there's there's a little something. Um, yeah, I, I looked up that today. And I was like, what? Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I had a blast with this. I think it's a really, as you say, Flick, I think it's a really great introduction to, to Susie Quattro's oh, It was career. also, I think, quite nice to see something that didn't feel like a cliched rock star story. So we've gone from talking about Sid and Nancy where we go, okay, that kind of has all the sort of cliches around it. Where it, um, Susie Quattro doesn't have that. She no was, drugs. Yeah. yeah. And she was like, I'm going to be in Happy Days. I'm going to go do pantomimes. I'm going to go and, you know, you know, just do things how I want to. And mm. I, yeah, I, I quite enjoyed that about her as well. Yeah, she went very mainstream yeah, in a lot of ways. But that seemed it, okay. And yeah. it was fine. That was the thing. It was kind of like, well, I'm turning mm-hmm. into an older woman and I'm yep. going to go to these and things I'm going to make a living and, mm. and unapologetically ambitious. I really yes. got into that. Which was very cool. Yeah. yeah from day one. Mm hmm. Um, so Suzy Q is now screening at Selected Independent and some Hoyt Cinemas. You've been listening to Plato's Cave on Triple R with Sally Christie, Flick Ford and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. On tonight's show, we discussed Judy and Punch, now screening at All Good Independent Cinemas, Sid and Nancy, now streaming on SBS On Demand, and Suzy Q, screening at Selected Independent and Hoyt Cinemas. You can listen back to the show within half an hour on Triple R On Demand or check out the songs we played on the Plato's Cave page at rrr.org.au right now. You can also subscribe to the Plato's Cave podcast via iTunes or wherever else you find your favourite podcast. So that is it for our individual reviews of 2019. Join us next week as we announce the Cave's collective top 10 films of the year. Will your favourites make it in? Will we turn you on to something you've missed? Find out next week. Oh, we should have like a voting thing on social media. Oh, okay. yeah, let's get that happening. <laughs> a huge thank you to Faith Everard for editing the Plato's Cave podcast, to Killer Carl Chapman for panelling our show, and to Lisa Kovacevic for producing our show. Thanks for listening to Triple R's Plato's Cave, a weekly radio show of informed, passionate and fun film criticism. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch with us via the Plato's Cave Facebook page, Twitter or via the Triple R website.